1: Today's Bible reading is from a number of passages in Proverbs, um, Proverbs 6, 12, 14, and 22. And it's just on the back of um, these pamphlets or on um, the service.coa.west, uh, site. Proverbs 6, 6 to 11. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Proverbs 12, 11. Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. Proverbs 12, 14. From the fruit of his mouth a man is satisfied with good, and the work of a man's hand comes back to him. Proverbs 14.23 In all toil there is profit, but mere talk tends only to poverty. Proverbs 22.29 Do you see a man skilful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. This is the word of
0: the Lord. Thank you, Donna. Well, once upon a time, I was a pizza boy, Uh, you know, the guy who has to deliver the pizzas. I was about 18 or 19, seemed like a good idea at the time. I uh, just got my license and the thought of driving around for four hours every night sounded exotic. But I soon realized that I'd made a terrible mistake. You see, uh, the way you got paid in this job was you only got $3 per delivery, not per pizza, per delivery. And if you were lucky, in an hour, you'd maybe do three deliveries, maybe four if you're really lucky, which basically meant that you were paid a maximum of about $10 an hour and you had to pay for your own petrol. It was a complete scam. And you should have got danger money as well. So I was working in Werribee and it felt like every house had some massive Rottweiler called Caesar. Caesar, get down here. And all that was still between you and certain death was this flimsy little flywire screen. I've had some horrible jobs. You know the junk mail that you get each week? That was me once for one week. I did it once, refused to do it again. But I've also had some wonderful jobs too. I've got to work in some bookshops. If anyone's seen my house, you know that I love books. I used to love being a graphic designer and I love my job now. In fact, it feels weird even calling it a job because it's become so much a part of my identity. And so work really is a remarkable thing. It occupies an enormous amount of our time and our energy. It affects our emotions and our well-being, and it both reflects and shapes who we are. It's something then that we want to do well, and that's where Proverbs comes in. We're midway through our series in the book of Proverbs and we've seen that Proverbs is all about wise living, about living well. Kenneth Akins defines wisdom as the skillful mastery of life. Work is a massive part of our lives and so we want to master it. We want to work wisely. And Proverbs has a lot to say about this. Work is a big theme of the book of Proverbs, and it talks about all kinds of work, agriculture, cattle farming, textiles, and clothing manufacture, trade, the military, governing, uh, law courts, homemaking, education, construction. Proverbs has something to say about all of these different things. And across the whole lot, I've noticed a few key themes that I want to talk about today, the key principles of working wisely. And the first one is this, we need to work ethically. That's the first prerequisite. Proverbs is very clear that we should choose ethical occupations and then uphold ethics within those jobs. Proverbs 11, a false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. Imagine You're imagining here a marketplace where maybe you want to get some barley and it's normally $4 a kilo or something like that. And you go up to the scales and the guy has rigged the scales so that it actually looks heavier than it actually is. And so he can make more money off you. He's fleecing you. And Proverbs says that that is not how we should work. We should work ethically. Proverbs 21, the getting of treasure by a lying tongue is a fleeting vapour and a snare of death. Imagine a used car salesman uh, deceiving you about the defects on the car that you're buying. This is unethical and unwise, says Proverbs. And this really stems from the founding principle of wisdom. What's that? Well, it's the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 9, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. To fear the Lord is basically to recognise his greatness and then to respond in humility and obedience. David Atkinson says it's reverent obedience. That's an easy way to remember it, reverent obedience, a recognition then that God is watching and so a false balance is an abomination to him so we won't do it. The wise person then is constantly seeking to live and work in accordance with God's will. That's the matrix that they're putting on every part of their life and then it's the matrix they bring to their work. They're saying to themselves, would God be happy with the kind of work that I'm doing and how I'm doing it? Does does this line up with his values, with his ethics? Now that might mean that we say no to certain jobs, to certain types of work. Sometimes this is really obvious A Christian will say no to sex work, for instance, or organised crime. Yes, it's nicely organised, but it's still crime. (laughs) A Christian will say no to shady practices in a legitimate job too. It's a good thing for a a, a Christian to be in the police force, but it would be a wrong thing for them to abuse that power or to take a bribe or something like that. That would be unethical. Now, that's all pretty obvious, but then there's a whole lot of grey areas outside of that which really require us to pursue wisdom. I remember there was a guy who used to come to City on a Hill who, who worked in the marketing department of a gambling company. His job basically was just to help people gamble. Now, I imagine there might be some debate among us about Christians and gambling. Maybe you have a little flutter in the Melbourne Cup or you, you put two bucks in the pot when you're playing poker. But I think everyone would agree that gambling can be a problem for some people. They they can't control it. They get addicted to it and they ruin their lives and the lives of other people around them because of it. So it seems a little odd to me that a Christian would be a part of that. I mean, the whole goal of your job is to separate people from their money. And really, you're preying on the vulnerable. Now, sure, there's there's warnings on gambling ads. Imagine what you could be buying instead. But if your job needs that kind of a warning, perhaps it's time to consider your options. just seems problematic. And then there's a whole bunch of jobs that are legitimate and important, but there is a prevailing culture within those occupations that can be difficult. Uh, we have a friend who's a real estate agent, for instance, and he said, look, basically when you're selling a house, you just have to lie. That's just how it works, and it's just accepted in that industry. And so his, his definition of a lie had changed. If it kept him up at night, that was a lie, but everything else <laughs> didn't matter. Like, that, it's a pretty low bar for what a lie is. Or think about journalism. When I was a kid, I always wanted to be a journalist. But there's some aspects to that job that I think I would find uncomfortable now. You see, for many journalists, your whole job is just trying to sensationalise things, gin up controversy or reveal some secret about someone else. Now, sometimes that's important. Sometimes we need investigative journalism. We need to understand what's going on with our politicians. But other times it's just gossip. And as we saw a few weeks ago, a wise person will seek to avoid that. They won't want to destroy other people. So it becomes tricky. Now, don't mishear me, I'm not saying that a Christian can't do these jobs, that a Christian can't be a journalist or a real estate agent, but I am saying that there will be some challenges for you in that field. There's a culture in those professions that you'll need to be aware of, and so you'll need to decide how you're going to stand firm on your convictions to uphold the highest standards of morality. And if it's too difficult to do that, you might need to consider removing yourself from that work. And I actually think that the ethical dimensions of work are are becoming ever more relevant for us in all kinds of professions as the role of companies and corporations change. See, in the past, I'd say that there were stronger institutions in our society and clearer lines of separation. So you went to church to get moral and ethical guidance, and you went down the street to go to your shop, and they were just kind of neutral. They were there to provide products and services, and they, were, they weren't they were really concerned about ethics other than just kind of basic fairness and generosity. Perhaps they weren't there to give you moral uh, instruction. But now the, the role of the church has kind of diminished in our society. One in five Australians go to church once a month and so it doesn't have as much impact on our society. And so there's a big gap there, a kind of moral and ethical gap, and people are trying to fill that and corporations have kind of rushed into that. They've tried to become moral arbiters, moral crusaders. So you might struggle to get somewhere in time with Qantas, but they'll certainly tell you your ethics, how you should live or something like that. Or the AFL clearly sees itself as a very uh, important social agent in our society, now, sometimes this can be good. So the AFL has done some really important work around multiculturalism, for instance. But sometimes I think it can be bad. So Airbnb, for instance, has, has banned guests with political views ever mainstream just 10 years ago. Eventbrite recently made their position clear when they refused access to, to, to their website for a feminist group that was seeking to put on an event for just women-only spaces. Or well, think of Essendon last year refusing to give uh, Andrew Thorburn the role of CEO because of his uh, religious, private religious convictions. Had nothing to do with the job. They were just excluding him on something quite unrelated to football. Now, to be honest, I'd prefer it if companies just kind of stayed out of these social issues altogether and stayed neutral, but I actually think that's probably a bit hypocritical of me. You see, as a Christian, I want to bring my ethics everywhere I go so I probably can't complain if others do as well. Now, hopefully as Christians, we do a better job of uh, showing tolerance and working with other people that disagree with us and some of the woke corporations around us. But, but either way, these things are here. The workplace is now ideologically and ethically charged. And as Christians, we need to make a decision. We bring our religion into our work, but there's a whole bunch of other religions in our work too, secular religions. And they bring values that might conflict with ours. So you need to decide what you're going to do. Do do you wear the rainbow lanyard? Do you do you be a part of the pride event? Now, as Christians, we're totally against bullying or excluding people, but we're also against proclaiming and celebrating something that the Bible doesn't agree with. And so we need to be wise in how we work. How do we work ethically? These are questions we need to consider. Then the second characteristic of wise work is to work hard. Uh, Proverbs draws a sharp contrast between two people, the diligent worker and the sluggard. It's an amazing word, sluggard. Like you can just feel that word. It just feels like someone, a sloth, just crawling along the ground, lacking in energy and urgency. Basically, a a sluggard is a slacker. Remember Back to the Future? You're a slacker, McFly, a slacker. It's like your dad. That's what a sluggard is. Now, Proverbs has a lot to say about the sluggard, and none of it is good. See, a sluggard is allergic to effort. If you give them a task, they'll find an excuse to get out of it, no matter how ridiculous. Proverbs 22, the sluggard says, oh, there's a lion outside. I shall be killed in the streets. I found some fantastic excuses online the other day. People getting out of work, an employee called in sick because they were experiencing traumatic stress from a large spider found in their home. A bloke said he couldn't come to work because he put his wet uniform in the microwave to dry it and now it had caught on fire. Uh, Perhaps my favourite, though, was the woman who explained that she couldn't make it to work because she'd accidentally stepped on a plane Uh, going on holiday. Oh, I didn't realise this happened to me. A sluggard will find any excuse they can to avoid work. And if you do manage to get a sluggard to do some work, then they'll complain the whole time and make it miserable for everyone else. If you've ever asked your kids to clear up the garden, you know what this looks like. One of my sons, who shall remain nameless, is a genius in doing as little as possible. He comes out moaning and groaning, his head flopping around. So he's about to fall off in despair? Takes as long as possible to get ready. He's fascinated by his gloves. Oh, isn't this amazing? Putting them on slowly and marveling at. It. And then he, when he does start to do the work, every handful of leaves is just agony. He has to do this thing. And every two minutes he has got to get a drink. So every five minutes, he has to go to the toilet. And all the while is asking again and again in the most plaintive cry, like how much longer to go? Like this is just going to kill him. It is painful. It's like smoke in your eyes. That's what Proverbs says, chapter 10, like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes. So is the sluggard to those who send him. It's just painful. You know, when you're at the campfire, the spiritual gift of attracting fire and smoke, wherever I stand, it follows me. That's what it feels like. And that's what it's like when you try to get a sluggard to work. Now, sometimes a sluggard will get a bit excited and start talking about their work, but it's only ever talk. They're full of big plans. Oh, one day I'm going to do this. I've got this idea. But it's all just talk. Nothing comes of it. Proverbs 14, in all toil there is profit, but mere talk tends only to poverty. I had a friend like this, wonderful guy, one of my best mates, and he wanted to be an illustrator. And he was a fantastic artist. He would do these wonderful little pictures. They were just so quirky and funny, and he wanted to make a job out of this. He wanted to become a full-time illustrator. And he may well have been able to do this if he could just find a way to commit to it. So he was always toing and froing. Because he wanted to do this work, he'd sort of say no to every other kind of job and say, oh, no, I need to focus on my illustrating. But then he'd sit down and just kind of do do it for a couple of hours and then do something else, find some way to waste his time. He just couldn't do the hard work required to make it work. Then maybe he bought into the idea that work comes naturally when you're passionate about it. That's how it is in the movies. You know, someone gets a bright idea, they stay up all night, and they've solved the world's problems. Jack Kerouac is famous for writing his book On the Road in uh, just a few weeks on a 120-foot roll of paper. He just wrote it out. But that's not generally how it works. Bryce Courtenay used to say that there's one secret to good writing, bum glue, like you just stick at the seat. You just stay there all day. And he would. He would dedicate 12 hours a day to writing and he produced more than 20 books. And each one kind of doubles up as a as a doorstopper. Like he really put in the hard work. Because it takes hard work to achieve something. I like how Proverbs puts it. Chapter 14, where there are no oxen, the manger is clean, but abundant crops comes by the strength of the ox. So you can keep your stable clean, you can keep your desk neat and tidy, your ute sparkling white, if you don't do any work. But actual work, abundant crops, something meaningful, worthwhile, real achievement comes through the strength of the ox, through mud and sweat and tears. You have to work for it. See, ultimately, the sluggard is always looking for a shortcut, a shortcut that's not actually there. They crave and get nothing, Proverbs 13 says. Ultimately, I think it's because the sluggard is obsessed with pleasure and comfort. They don't want to trouble themselves. When something gets difficult, they run away. When it's no longer fun, they ditch it. Their echidna says the sluggard will not begin things, will not finish things, and will not face things. It's a good way to put it. In fact, they just want to go back to bed. The sluggard is constantly sleeping in Proverbs. In fact, in Proverbs 26, it suggests that the only kind of exercise they get is when they turn over in bed, like that's their exercise for the day. But ultimately, this is destructive. Proverbs 20, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. See, the sluggard is trying to do nothing but their passivity is doing something, it's destroying things. It's destroying their reputation. Proverbs 26, the sluggard buries his hand in the dish, it wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. Like he can't even be bothered picking up the food and putting it in his mouth. Like you, you hear the disgust in the description. Like what a loser. That's what the Proverbs are saying. And at a practical level, they're also endangering themselves. Proverbs 20. The sluggard does not plough in autumn, and he will seek at harvest and have nothing. So Israel is a land of farmers, so if you didn't plant your seed at the right time, you wouldn't have food later on. You'd be go hungry. And so there's this irony like that. The, the sluggard is obsessed with themselves, with comfort, but they ultimately destroy themselves. And not just themselves either. Proverbs 18, whoever is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys. See, on most of these farms, you would be cooperative farmers and so you would kind of plant seed for everyone in your whole village or your whole family. And so if you didn't do your job, everyone would suffer. The slugger does nothing and in doing nothing, they destroy everything. Now, it might seem strange to talk so long about slackers because actually people work pretty hard in our culture. Uh, You might remember I preached a couple of months ago on work here and I mentioned that Australians actually spend a lot of time at work. Around uh, 270,000 people work more than 70 hours a week. There's actually a thing called go home on time day to just get people out of the office. And between us, Australians have some 185 million days of unused annual leave. As many as one-third of people haven't been on holiday for over a year. So you might think, we don't need to worry about this. None of us are sluggards. And yet if you look a little bit closer, there might be things here that we need to consider. You see, we actually all have our own techniques for going a little bit soft, for not working hard. If you work in the office, you can wear out that water cooler. You can stretch your lunch breaks. You can waste time in meetings. If you work from home, you know how, hard, uh, how easy it is to get into bad habits. You start late, scroll through Facebook for two minutes, it becomes 20 minutes. At your lunch break, you watch one episode on Netflix, it becomes three episodes, whatever it is. Gen Z talks about quiet quitting, putting in the minimum amount of effort to keep their jobs, but never going beyond that. That's the attitude of the sluggard. And it's dangerous because that kind of attitude starts to feed on itself. Proverbs 19, slothfulness casts into a deep sleep. Once you start being slothful, it's actually very hard to get out of it. You start getting lazy, it becomes a habit, it becomes a rhythm. It's the way that you live. And so you have to be disciplined. Or as Proverbs puts it, you need to be diligent. So your diligent worker works hard. The woman of Proverbs 31 is probably the best example of this. We're told in verse 17 that she dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She's working hard. She rises while it is yet night and her lamp does not go out at night. Like she's working around the clock if she needs to. And this isn't just out of duty. She does it willingly. She works with willing hands, we're told. She doesn't just need a boss breathing down her neck, forcing her to work. She's, she wants to do it. She gives herself to do it because she sees it as enjoyable. She finds purpose in it and it pays off. She opens her hand to the poor, reaches out her hands to the needy. She has enough not just for her own family but for others as well. She works hard enough to be diligent, uh, to be generous to other people. And that's how it works. Proverbs 12, from the fruit of his mouth, a man is satisfied with good and the work of a man's hand comes back to him. If you, The more that you put in, the more you you will get out and you'll even get more opportunities. The hand of the diligent will rule. You'll be seen as someone who can be trusted and you'll be given more opportunities. You'll be promoted. So we need to work hard. That's a wise way to work. And then thirdly, we need to work skillfully. I don't know if you notice noticed this, but AFL commentators talk a lot nowadays about the craft of football, forward craft, defensive craft, stoppage craft. Now, this is all a bit different to when I was younger. It was just about natural ability and kicking as far as you can. But now that the players are full-time professionals, they're working at their game. And so they're working at their skills and it elevates it, doesn't it? This isn't just a game, it's a job. In fact, it's not just a job though, it's a craft, something that you take pride in. And the way I see it, if a footballer can take pride in their work, so can we. Proverbs paints a picture of what that can look like. First of all, it means thinking through your work, really engaging your mind with it. Proverbs 27, know well the condition of your flocks and give attention to your herds. What it's saying is a good worker is thinking constantly about their resources. They know what they've got and they know how to maximise they know how. what's next. A shopkeeper knows their stock. A, a manager knows how their employees are going. A teacher knows how to take their students to the next level. They're always planning ahead, looking for the next opportunity. Again, the woman of Proverbs 31, she considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She's assessing her opportunities and then grabbing them when they come up. And this takes patience and foresight. See, she can plant the crop now, but it might be two or three years before there's a vine, before she can do something with it, but she's looking ahead. And so when she needs it, it'll be there. And ultimately, a skillful worker takes pride in their work, and so they do it properly. Proverbs 21, the plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. See, a hasty worker just wants to get the job done, and so they cut corners and they stuff it all up. Just down the road from my house is uh, Werribee Plaza or Pacific Werribee, uh, which underwent a massive renovation, multi-million dollar renovation about 10 years ago. For the last six months, however, a big chunk of the place has been closed off for structural repairs because they're worried the whole thing will fall down. Now, this is a massive job, a very expensive one, and one that could have been avoided if they'd actually done the job properly the first time. Everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. But the diligent do their work skillfully, and so they only have to do it once. So take pride in your work. Look for the craft in it and master that. Now, all of this might seem fairly obvious. It's the kind of thing you might hear in a careers class at school or reading some management book, like work ethically, work hard, work skillfully. So what makes the Bible different? What's the secret source? Well, I think it's this. It's about working purposely. And it comes back to what we were saying at the start of this sermon, the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Really, what it is, the the distinctiveness of Christian work is that we work with and for God. That's the beautiful picture that we have of work in the Bible. It's what we see in Genesis with the origins of work. God gives work to Adam and Eve. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And what's that work? Well, if you've been here before, you would have heard me say it's about helping creation, working with God to help creation flourish. That's the picture. God bless them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and so on. Now, sometimes we balk at that phrase, dominion and subduing, but it, we don't need to worry about that. It's, it's not saying that we destroy the world or subjugate it. No, it's actually saying that we do something with it, something positive with it with God's world. You see, God has placed all of this potential in the ground and the potential in the world around us. And it's our job to get that potential out. That's the work that he's given us. All of this world has possibilities and our job is to explore them. As Tim Keller says, the pattern for work is rearranging the raw material of God's creation in such a way that it helps the world and people thrive and flourish. That's our job. That's what work is, helping everything thrive and flourish. And as we do that work, we actually start to thrive and flourish too. We discover the ways that God has made us, the things that we're passionate about, the the abilities and skill that we have. We get to work in his specific realm for his world. There's a wonderful example of this in Exodus 36. God's people are putting together the tabernacle, the place where they'll, the tent where they'll meet with God. And we're told, Moses says, uh, that God has placed in every craftsman in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence to know how to do their work. So God is placing skill and intelligence in these people. And he does it with us too. He says, right, I need this to happen in my world. So I'll give this person these abilities so that they can do it. God does this. We work with him and for him, and so we have purpose in our work. Now, that might sound pretty good. If you can find a job that you enjoy, you know, find a job you love and you'll never have to work a day in your life. That's the kind of common saying. But what if you don't have that? What if you've got a job that you really don't enjoy? It's not very glamorous. It's boring. What if you're a pizza boy? How do you find fulfilment in your work? Well the cool thing about working with God is that it gives anything and everything purpose perhaps the most remarkable example of this comes in Ephesians 6 Paul's writing to the church at Ephesus which is in the the Roman world and the Roman world had a lot of slavery so many of the early Christians were actually slaves and their conditions weren't great I mean they were, better than later slaves, but they still didn't have the kind of rights that we just take for granted. So if any work was going to be hard and difficult and unfulfilling, you would think that this would be that work. But to these guys, Paul says you've still got an opportunity to honour God because you're working with God. He says, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, like you're working for him. And then he goes on to say, render service with a goodwill as to the Lord and not to man. So he's saying, always in every work that you do, you're ultimately serving God. And so that gives it purpose. Any job can have purpose if you understand who you're working for. Tim Keller says, no task is too small a vessel to hold the immense dignity of work given by God. You see, sometimes we imagine that the only kind of really meaningful spiritual work is just if you're a chaplain or you work for a church or something like that, you're a missionary, but no, the Bible makes it clear that any work can honour him. Any work can be worshipful. As Robert Greaves puts it, who you work for is more significant than what you do or where you work. And so work becomes an act of Worship. It's a way of us experiencing God and then expressing his character to the world. And so if we understand that, then we'll work with wisdom. We'll work ethically because we want to show the world the character of God. The lawyer will seek to bring God's justice into the world. The salesman will choose a path of honesty and integrity. The stockbroker will play by the rules and not just be driven by greed. And then we'll work hard because we see the value of work, the importance of doing something for him. And we'll work skillfully because that's how God works. So he created us and he loved to do it. We are handcrafted, Psalm 139 says. God loved to make us. And so he took pride in his work and we do too. Dorothy Sayers says the only Christian work is good work, well done. So Colossians 3, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. But to serve the Lord Christ properly, you first need to let him serve you. So that's the message of the Christian gospel. So as Christians, we know that we are called to work wisely, but we often work foolishly. We're made to work with God and for God, but most of the time, often we work against him and for ourselves. So we don't always work ethically. We, The workplace is often a place of sin, of, of gossip and backstabbing. We hurt other people. We're ruthless. And the work that we do sometimes isn't good. And we, We're part of things that hurt other people. We take advantage of people's frailties. There's, there's stuff that leaves a bad taste in our mouths. Ah, I wish I hadn't been a part of it. And we don't always work hard, you know, we slack off, we get lazy, we procrastinate, we give just work to other people. If the boss was watching, he'd be unimpressed and God is watching. Or conversely, we work too hard. We spend so much time at our work that we sacrifice other important things like our family or our friends or our children. We work for the wrong reasons, for money or power or acclaim. We're just working for ourselves There's vanity. And then we don't always dedicate ourselves to working well. We cut corners, end up costing money for the boss. We don't take pride in our work, which reflects on those that we work for, and ultimately it reflects badly on God. And so if God was to give us the annual review, we would fall short. We're not always good workers. But the wonderful news of Christianity is that Jesus will work for us. He has worked for us. Jesus went to work in the world to save us and bring us back and to redeem us and restore us. He did, first of all, what we had failed to do. He picked up the, the, the stuff that we had let go. He took on the work of being perfect. That's what we couldn't do, and he took that on for us. And now when God looks at us, if we trust in him, God looks at us and sees that we've done a great job. And then he did what we'd failed to do. He, he made up for our sin. He died for us, and all we need to do is to trust in him and our sin will be cleared away, and then we're given a chance to go to work afresh with a new attitude, working with him and for him, and all you need to do is to rest in that work, to put your trust in what Jesus has done, and then that will transform all of your work. You'll find true purpose because you're working with the one who saved you, and for his glory. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the gift of work. We thank you that you worked and you did such a wonderful job. We are the fruit of your work. You've made us so beautifully and wonderfully and we praise you for it. Lord, uh, we recognise that we don't always work well, we don't always work ethically, don't always work hard, and we don't always honour you uh, with uh, with our work by the way that we uh, cut corners and so on. But, Lord, thank you for Jesus who worked on our behalf and so that's all dealt with. So, Lord, refresh us and give us a new approach, a new mindset. Help us to work with you and for you, to rest in what Jesus has done and then to seek to show your goodness to the world. When people see us in the office, may they see someone who is living according to your values. May they see someone who's ultimately working for you and not just for the company who has a a genuine heart for what they're doing because you've given us a heart for you. May we show your goodness to the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.